Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast, where you'll always find enthusiastic data-driven fantasy baseball analysis. I'm your host, Toby. In today's podcast, we have an interview with Patrick Donovan of the Fantasy World Order uh, podcast, also on Twitter at PatrickFWO. Um, he is a smart fantasy baseball guy doing some data-driven analysis himself. Talked with him a little bit about his process, the tools, metrics, resources that he uses in his analysis, as well as some draft strategy, in-season management, uh, and other, uh, other fun topics that are fantasy baseball related. He also provided some suggestions for fantasy owners on players that can help folks down the stretch, and then provides his fresh-baked cookies and hard cookies heading into the 2019 draft season. Those are players that he uh, expects uh, to own a lot of shares of and then folks that he expects to disappoint. Uh, just to be clear, the hard cookie uh, is the disappointing uh, thing for any of you who have ever had that experience uh, at a bakery. Uh, so as always, you can find the podcast uh, on iTunes and other podcast platforms. If you like what you're hearing, please do go give us a five-star rating write a nice review, um, and share the podcast. Let your friends know that you've enjoyed it. Anything you can do to really help spread the word, I would greatly appreciate it. You can follow me on Twitter at BatFlipCrazy, and the blog is BatFlipCrazy.com. Also got YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook if you are interested in that. Really enjoyed the conversation with, uh, the conversation with Patrick. I think we covered... Uh, a lot of ground and some, um, yeah, so just some good points of uh, conversation about fantasy baseball that I think will be useful to folks both now um, as we head towards the end of the season and also heading into next year. So thank you so much for listening. As always, let's get this party started. I'm here with Patrick Donovan. Hey, Patrick, how's it going? I'm good, good. How are you? Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, of course, Patrick. I really appreciate you joining the show. Um, For folks um, who don't know, interview we're doing on the Batflip Crazy podcast and really trying to create a space where folks can uh, learn from some of the best fantasy baseball players about uh, their process, the tools, the resources that they're using and also some strategy. And Patrick um, is definitely uh, somebody that you want to follow on Twitter um, and uh, just a great fantasy baseball player, really good insight. Patrick, can you let folks know where they can uh, reach you? Yeah, I'm on the Fantasy World Order podcast, available to the Fantrax Podcast Network, and they can find me on Twitter at PatrickFWO. You can also find my co-host Joe Saunders at JoeFWO, and Nick Ligatino at Nick FWL. Also very, very knowledgeable players, just not as knowledgeable as I am. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I would, uh, I would second that as well. Definitely check out the podcast. Uh, they go into really great depth uh, in analyzing players and talking through strategy, and it's a, it's a lot of fun. So definitely check that out. Um, how are your uh, – we're, we're kind of heading down the stretch. It's definitely a grind this fantasy baseball season. I can't imagine what it's like for uh, baseball players. Uh, but we've got about a little over two weeks left to go. How are your teams doing heading down the stretch here? Uh, Mostly good in redraft. Uh, My primary league, uh, I finished in second in my head-to-head cats 
league, uh, currently sitting in the playoffs with a bye. Um, sitting a distant third in League 7 of the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational. So a nice year there, but not a winner. Um, yeah. My two dynasty teams, uh, I didn't do as well. I had one had a terrible year due to injuries, but it was a good opportunity to sort of retool. And the other is just entering its contention window. That's a head-to-head points league, and we just missed the playoffs, myself and Joe Saunders. Um, mm. But, you know, I, I mean, I just want to take this opportunity for anybody that doesn't have a dynasty league team. I really think that you should consider it. It's a fantastic format. It's an entirely different way to play the game. Um, and it keeps you involved, even if you've had some poor luck. Um, you know, if you've been struck by the injury bug, uh, you can still play, still trade, uh, make moves that matter. You know, you're not just playing for pride, you're playing for next year. And it's, it's just a really nice format, a different way of playing the game. And it's probably as close as you can get to real baseball. Definitely. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great insight right there. I am playing my first Dynasty uh, League this year, and I have, uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed that um, a lot. It also helps kind of familiarize yourself with some of the prospects well ahead of time. Um, as they come up, you know, I, I generally tend to focus more on the guys who are already up there, but you really get a sense of who, uh, who's coming up the pike and what their, you know, perceived or real value is. So that's a great, uh, great suggestion there. Yeah. There's nothing better than a fringe prospect that, you know, you just found and the guy just breaks out. Um, Joey Lucchese is one of those guys for me this mm. year that I found um, probably two summers ago as a pop-up guy and uh, came up this year and had a very, very solid year. Nice. Yeah. There always are those guys um, uh, who kind of come out of nowhere in the prospect ranking. So um, definitely uh, that is a great suggestion though. That definitely is a lot of fun uh, dynasty leagues Um, on this, on the podcast I mentioned before, you know, we're going to focus a lot on process and kind of, uh, tools, metrics, things like that, that you're using in your fantasy baseball analysis. But we, before we do that, um, we're headed into the last two plus weeks of the season. Uh, give me a, f- uh, uh, a few names of, you know, a couple lesser owned players you think um, can help fantasy owners win their league down the stretch. Well, at least, to, at least not to your surprise or anybody's surprise right. that knows me. The first name I'm going to bring up is Randall Grichuk. Um, currently 10% owned in 12-team leagues. Um, my show's been on Grichuk all year. Too long, in fact. Um, he got off to such a terrible start. and then it, it, it looks a lot better now. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, and it was terrible start, followed by the DL. But since June 1st, it's 326 plate appearances, 19 homers, two steals, 277, 325, 550, 545. So, I mean, nice. he's kind of been what we thought we what we thought we were going to get just hasn't been it the whole time and now he's right in the middle of that lineup now that you know the moves are done um guys have kind of moved around he's getting every day at bats and he's hitting you know fourth or fifth most days so he's driving guys in as well 0.7 percent hard contact percentage during that time 50 percent pull rate a nice batted ball distribution um 64 air balls which is line drives and fly balls and, you know, it's, it, it backs up the results that he's been able to achieve through this hot stretch, which has now been going on for, you know, over three months. 
Definitely. Yeah, I remember when he started getting hot, uh, you know, his uh, in-zone contact was up uh, considerably, and it looks like it's kind of stayed there a little bit. So, um, you know, that's a, it's a great recommendation there. Hopefully, hopefully folks uh, may still have access to Grichuk. Um, a lot of a lot of churning going on in uh, fantasy rosters, especially daily moves uh, these days. So, cool. Who else you got for us? Uh, Ryan O'Hearn, uh, 8%. He's one of those sort of fringy prospects, kind of like Joey Lucchese, who I just mentioned, who I've had my eyes on over the year. Um, he's always been fringy uh, because he's a first baseman, um, but he's been on a surge since coming up. Um, the profile reminds me a little bit of Matt Olson. Um, he's a bit less extreme on the fly balls, uh, which is going to be a plus for his Babbitt. But the Ks, the walks, the hard contact, the stat cast data all look very similar to Olson, who I'm a big fan of. Um, and I'm going to talk about later. Uh, so I think O'Hearn could be a nice source of power here down the stretch, should play almost every day for the Royals. And their schedule isn't too intimidating. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, was, uh, I, was, I mentioned him earlier this week on Twitter and last week on Twitter too because of the schedule that the Royals have. I mean, this week it's the White Sox and the Twins, and um, I don't think it's too tough next week. But, yeah, he's, you know, he's as well, and – I think he's one of those guys that shows up towards the end of the year and the skills, as you mentioned, are supporting what he's doing so far. And just because he doesn't maybe have that prospect pedigree or the name recognition, he's still flying under the radar. Do um, you have any, a couple pitchers uh, folks may want to look at? Yeah, I gave the honorable mention that Jake Junis, uh, he's been hot for a while. At 43%, I thought he was a little high for this list. Um, but he was another preseason favorite that's really turned a corner after um, – you know, a pretty rough stretch. Um, but going a little deeper, I like Reynaldo Lopez uh, at 23% in 12-team mixers. Uh, Lopez is a serious power pitcher um, that has had struggles with his command and control, but it looks like the control might be taking a step forward. He's got a diverse enough arsenal. And again, you know, those AL Central teams, the schedules aren't daunting coming down the stretch. There's some good opportunities to throw them out there. Um, I wouldn't throw him out there against just everybody, but, um, you know, in a plus matchup, I think he can put together a quality start or even more than that, given his arsenal. Great. Yeah. And with some of the names I'm running out there in some of my deeper leagues too, uh, you know, having a, a Lopez or a Junis might, would be pretty, pretty refreshing. Um, all right. So, um, so four players that might be able to help fantasy owners down the stretch, Randall Grichuk. Ryan O'Hearn, Reynaldo Lopez, and Jacob Junis. Uh, folks, uh, go out there and pick up those guys if they're available in your league. Um, so now getting into the kind of deeper part of the, uh, the interview, let's talk a little bit about your process. You know, one element, um, you know, and you, you actually, you know, I think in going over some of these players, you kind of hit on some of these questions. But, you know, one thing that's kind of universal um, is player analysis. Um, you know, every fantasy analyst is looking at different metrics, websites, uh, tools and skills to evaluate players. So what are some of the tools and resources, uh, some of your favorite metrics that you use when you're analyzing players? Yeah, I mean, my go to resources, and I, I think this will be a fairly universal answer across the board. Uh, when it comes to hitters, you know, I really I really like fan graphs and I like the stack data that's available on Baseball Savant. Um, you know, fan graphs I use for everything. That's 
hardly rev- revolutionary. Um, yeah. As far as metrics go, my process is sort of gradual. Um, what I what, what do I think about? What do I think I know about the player? If he's a power hitter, he's got some swing and miss, etc. Um, then I do sort of an initial scan of the player to make sure that my understanding is correct, that my eyes or my thinking about a player's past hasn't deceived me in a way. Um, you know, players change. Sometimes we can get locked in on a preconceived notion or vision of a player and forget they evolve. Um, this recently happened to me when we were talking about Masahiro Tanaka on my podcast. Um, mm. You know, I sort of thought that he had missed more time in recent seasons than he had. Um, and that's, that's why that's useful. And that's why it's important to go back and sort of test your preconceived notions about, about the players um, that you're going to take a look at. Um, you know, if everything was in order with about what I would expect results wise, I tend to focus almost immediately on K percentage and walk percentage for hitters because therein you're talking about, you know, some key skills. You're talking about pitch recognition. You're talking about plate discipline. Um, and, you know, plate discipline inevitably brings you to that fan graphs plate discipline chart. How much mm. do they swing outside the zone? How much do they it, swing inside the zone? It's a beautiful chart. Yes. I love plate <laughs> discipline. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I mean, you mentioned it, you know, like when we talked about Grichuk, how much contact is he making inside the zone? Um, how much swing and miss? Um, you know, as far as those indicators go, oh, swing percentage is big for me. I can live with the struggles of a player as long as you're not hurting yourself. But when a hitter chases, that's something that I just cannot, um, you know, stand. I, 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 it's just that profile gets to me more than anything else. I find it incredibly frustrating um, unless they have a sustained track record for making contact outside of the zone. Yeah. Um, well, and even if they're making contact outside the zone, how quality of contact is that going to be? Um, yeah, and how long can they sustain it too? Yeah, yeah, because that's one of the I'm I'm right there with you. Like I think one of my weaknesses is I I those guys those O swing guys right like your Javi Baez is I'm gonna miss on them a lot because I um you know I don't like that approach um, and it's one reason why I do really well in runs because I tend to get to get guys with pretty good plate discipline um, in terms of categories but I do think there's you know, uh, whether it's Javi Baez, Aviseo Garcia is somebody who I kind of like heading into next year. Um, you know, that, you know, it's, it's a tough approach to like, but I definitely hear you that um, O-swing is the, is the first skill that I look at too when I'm looking at a player. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Scope's another one, um, you know, that swings a ton outside the zone. I've been against him for years. I mean, I've got Javi Baez, his name right here. It's just... I don't tend to own the free swingers. Um, you know, it's just, it, it's a dangerous profile to me. Um, so, you know, then after plate discipline, I tend to go to batted ball data. Um, and then after batted ball data, I take a look at the stat cast and see if the batted ball data and the stat cast lines up. Um, because, you know, there is some inconsistencies in the hard contact data. Um, you know, I'm specifically talking about Detroit, um, you know, there, there is this theory out there that Detroit's hard contact data is sort of loopy, um, that maybe there's a hot gun there. Um, or I've heard other theories as well, that it's simply the park mm-hmm. is an excellent hitter's park, except, you know, not necessarily great for power, but great for line drives and hard contact. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I think it's important to sort of use StatCast 
and the batted ball data to kind of make sure that the two line up. Otherwise, you might be getting some noise. And with StackCast, I'm looking at fly ball, line drive, exit velocity, 95-plus mile-per-hour hit percentage, and, of course, the barrels data. Hmm. Yeah, and I think your point about the looking at the line drive and fly ball exit velocity, that's so critical because – um, you know, average exit velocity when we're just talking about uh, just overall average exit velocity. That's one of the metrics that I'm not as interested in because there are so many ground balls that are hit, you know, 100 miles per hour or whatnot, um, you know, that, yeah, they may be a base hit, but they're not going to go for extra bases or other things. So looking at that, um, you know, the exit velocity by launch angle um, or, you know, by type of batted ball, line drive, fly ball, I think that makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you, and and that's exactly why I look at it, because, you know, I mean, if you're smoking grounders, it doesn't really do a lot for me. Yeah, definitely. And, and then as far as, like, pitchers go, you know, Brooks Baseball, I think, is super important. It's the easiest, I think, for analyzing changes in a pitcher. Um, you know, we had Jamison Tyone this year start to throw that slider more. I saw it, confirmed it via Brooks, went out and bought him in the league, and it's turned out to be a major addition. Um, you know, and Brooks isn't just great for identifying a new pitch. Uh, you know, the release point data is really good for identifying injuries or mechanical changes that could signal a positive, positive change. And then as far as, you know, like the hard statistics, K per nine walks per nine, uh, I'm still a walks and K per nine person because I can't, <laughs> I can't get around that. Like what that yeah. K percentage line is that's what, good what it and means. bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just like a mental block for me. And, yeah. I, and I think that some of the noise that comes in with K per nine kind of um, gets resolved in the other numbers. So, I mean, if you've got a really high K per nine, but you're not throwing a lot of innings, it's obvious that you're getting batted around and it's going to show in your whip and it's going to show in your ERA. Um, it's really tough to, avoid the noise that comes with caper nine. So um, I'm not, I'm not terribly worried about that swinging strike rate, obviously extremely important. Um, but, you know, I, I'm one of those people I won't, I'm not so obsessed with swinging strike rate that I, I have to have it at an elite level. I do think that batted ball management is um, an underrated skill. Now it does take some time for me to believe it's sticky um, you know, I'm talking well over a year, but once a guy has displayed consistently the ability to, um, you know, limit hard contact or induce a ton of ground balls, uh, I'm willing to take that contact management profile and kind of give him a little bit of a boost compared to other guys that get the whiffs, but maybe uh, are relying on luck and, and luck in terms of what happens with their hard contact. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And one, one thing I love too about Brooks baseball um, is that you can look at individual pitches. You can look at like uh, their swinging strike rate of individual pitchers and how that is changing over, over time as well. Whereas with fan graphs, you might be able to look at the overall swinging strike rate, but you can't look on at individual pitches. And you mentioned that like really being able to hone in on what's changed about a player's doing, I agree that Brooks baseball is a, is a phenomenal resource for pitching. Yeah. I have, I have trouble <laughs> with fan graphs with in particular with their two seamer four seamer designations. Cause they kind of, 
lump the fastball together in certain areas and then they kind of separate them out. Mm. Whereas um, I, I think on Brooks, it, it, it designates a two-seamer or, or, or designates it as a sinker and, and splits them up very, very clearly. Whereas Fangraphs kind of combines them and separates them out. Um, it gets to be a little confusing. Yeah, I feel like I've seen in a couple places um, some really well-respected folks in the industry have mentioned that they trust the data at Brooks Baseball, both like velocity and the other, some of the other data that you mentioned more um, than what, what Fangraphs is displaying. So that's a good, that's a great point. Um, any other kind of resources or metrics that you're looking at, uh, hitters or pitchers? I mean, you know, you're, you're always looking at, at different things. I mean, for instance, if a, if you want to see if a player has some stolen base upside, you might check the um, the sprint score leaderboards on StatCast. But, mm. you know, I, I think I've identified the primary ones that I really look to. Definitely. And when you have like a – let's say you have a player during a season who is, um, you know, breaking out uh, or doing better or worse than expectations, um, those are kind of the same places that you're going to to figure out whether – um, whether that's real or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. Well, uh, it's kind of crazy to think about, but um, as like these two early mock drafts get started here, anytime uh, draft season is far away, but it's not going to be very long until we are, um, you know, looking at spreadsheets full of player names and doing all of our draft prep um, for, for the season. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, how do you uh, approach draft season, um, kind of heading into it? Before I begin, let me let me ask you: Are you doing one of those two early mocks? Yeah, I am doing one of the two early mocks. Uh, it was actually, I'm, I'm doing ahead. one as well. I'm doing one as well. I actually got pick. I got pick one. Oh, you did. Oh, yeah. you did. Hmm. Are we going, yeah. Mike Trout? Who shall I take? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I've, I'm in one. It was actually supposed to start this morning, but um, I think they're still waiting for a couple of players to join. So I think it's going to start on Friday. But I'm very interested. I've seen a couple other mock drafts that have that have been out there, and it's just been it's interesting, you know, just to see the movement of players over the course of the year and recency biases and things like that, like how all that plays out. But um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to forward to doing that and you know and figuring it out. It's, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be interesting having a because this is the first year I'm doing it. Actually, having an effect on what will become, you know, the very early ADP data. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, going in off season, I, I run my own projections for hitters. I, I don't do it by formula. I don't have you know, I, I don't have formulas plugged into a spreadsheet that I'm running, but it's sort of just predictions of what I think will. Um, occur based upon the data available, um, some of which I just spoke about. Um, the fact that hitting is a little more predictable and less volatile than pitching uh, because of injuries or mechanics, I, I tend to skip doing pitching projections. Um, you know, I'll, I'll basically just line up their statistics, um, rank them, and then, you know, as I move the player, I'll move their statistics as well. Um, I, I just I just think there's too much volatility there. Um you know, but with pitchers, I'm reviewing the data, organizing and, and recognizing 
based upon more detailed information that I can get my hand on. Um, I, I try to do that sort of baseline dive on each pitcher. What's the repertoire? Did it change? If it changed, did it work? Was there an injury that caused any kind of decline? And then, you know, I applied to the situation. Like, take Patrick Corbin, um, who I believe is going to be a free agent this year. He's, he's a pitcher I liked a lot going into this year, and I've got him in a bunch of places, and he's really paid off. Um, but I look at that bad ball profile, and he's among the league leaders among starting pitchers in hard contact surrendered. Um, that could be really tricky if he ends up in a place like Yankee Stadium. Um, mm. So uh, I do factor in situation, but I'm factoring it in them last. Yeah. Cool. And um, uh, with your projections, do you do you take a look at, you know, like a steamer or um, some of these um, – you know, some of the projection systems that are publicly available and kind of determining uh, where you think a guy is going to go. Are you looking at uh, the past year of data? Are you looking at the past three years of data? What, what, um, what's kind of informing those projections for you, if it, if it isn't a formula? I, I look at, you know, the last, if I've got three years of data on a player, I'm certainly looking at three years. Mm-hmm. Um, I tend to run my projections. Or I think steamer actually comes out. Um, so, but even if it's post steamer, I do not look at steamer. I more use it as a cross check to make sure I'm not completely out of line <laughs> on a player. Yeah. Um, and if I'm completely out of line on a player, I tend to then take a second look. Um, but, you know, I don't always reduce down. It might just be that that's, that I've identified a player that steamer is not high on and I'm going to be higher on than the market. Yep. Um, you know, you have to sort of trust yourself on when it comes to these things uh, to some extent. And if you like a player more than a projection system, that doesn't mean that you're wrong. Um, but, you know, I mean, like I find historical data going back a couple of years, more useful for players that are hurt. Uh, I mean, for instance, like a player like Jay Bruce, uh, who has been, pretty much out of the lineup for most of the year. Um, I'll find his data for the last two years more instructive than I will for this year. Um, And I think that that's where the historical data becomes a little more useful. It also becomes more useful for, um, you know, you mentioned if a player breaks out, I mean, for instance, um, you know, if you, if you look at Max Muncy and you look at his historical data, I don't know how useful that is compared to what we have this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it depends on the player, but if you have an applicable data set, you should certainly go back and look at the old data. Yeah. Um, and so you, you develop the projections. Do you put together like a list of guys that you really want to target guys that you're not as interested in? How do you, um, you know, how do you, uh, are you ranking them based on the projection in, in an order? Um, how exactly do you use the projection as you head into drafts? I rank them uh, pretty much according to projection. Um, I will deviate slightly from a projection um, if there is a risk factor there, um, be it injury, be it playing time. Um, I tend to have a pretty decent stomach for risk. So I don't tend to adjust too much. Um, 
if I have a player that's ranked out of whack with ADP, I will make note of it. Um, you know, I think ADP is a useful tool, um, but I, I also don't, you know, wait until the pick before a player is going in their ADP to take them. Um, yeah. I will usually identify the player and say, all right, well, he, if the player is going at pick 120, I will have a note somewhere in my spreadsheet that I should take the picture, the picker, uh, the, ooh, the picker, the player uh, okay. somewhere around, you know, pick 100 to 105, um, you know, around to a round and a half to two rounds earlier, depending on the part of the draft to increase the <laughs> likelihood I'm going to get the player that I like. Yeah. Um, and so you're, let's say you're heading into your um, drafts. Is there a particular strategy that you like to follow in your drafting or does it change depending on the situation? Like, are you pretty fluid or are you going in there with a, a fairly set plan of, you know, which positions you want to target early or, um, you know, uh, how exactly do you approach the draft from a strategic standpoint? I think there's a couple of layers to this. First, I, I think it depends on how well I know my room. Um, you know, my home league, I've got, it's, it's turning 10 this year. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I know the guys in the league. I know their tendencies. Um, so I feel better about creating a plan in that particular draft because I've got a better idea of where those guys are going to go. Um, in a league where I'm not as familiar, I think I've got to be more fast and loose, um, you know, more trying to uh, more willing to adapt on the fly mm -hmm. and, and less rigid as far as my plan goes. Um, now, that's not to say that I, I don't go in with the plan because I do. You know, um, I'm, a, I'm a player that tends to devalue outfield a little bit. Uh, because I find that outfielders tend to be um, – and outfield tends to be a position where you have more breakouts, where there's more available players on the wire, uh, where you can get better value in the middle and late rounds of the draft. Um, so from in that sense, I'm, I'm not – I hate to say that I'm, I'm targeting positional scarcity or I'm emphasizing it. It's less that and it's more about the fact that I tend to like the value at outfield later. Um, so I find myself shifting away from outfield more so than shifting towards the other positions. Hmm. Um, I, I also like to have an idea of where I'm comfortable taking certain catchers uh, because, you know, sure. I, I, I don't want, I don't want to get stuck depending on the league format. Uh with, you know, an absolute zero. Um, yeah. Which is very easy. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, you know, I, I have Gary Sanchez all over the board this oh, year, man. and it's it's been rough. Yeah. But I'm definitely going to still be in on Gary Sanchez again <laughs> because I, I think he's a fantastic hitter. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's been a rough season, whatever. Yeah. But it, it'll, be, it'll be fascinating to see where he goes, um, you know, next year. Like how big of a drop is he going to take going in the, you know, at least in 15 teamers going kind of early second round, early mid second round. Um, 
this past year and after after the performance he's put together, it'll be interesting to see how much he drops given how little depth there is to the catcher position. Well, it's that. And then you've also got the fact that he's been really bad defensively. Yeah. And that team is loaded. So what is their patience with him at catcher and where does he get his at-bats if they move him off of it? I personally, I wouldn't be shocked if they trade him this offseason. Hmm. Just, just a hot take. Yeah, um, that's hot. That's a hot take for sure. I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised, given not only the fact that they're, I don't think they're positive he can stick a catcher, but I don't think they're thrilled with him. Uh, and I, I'm in New York, so, I mean, this might be an, an, an inside baseball kind of thing, but, yeah, um, you know, I, I think that they're a little fed up with his uh, lack of – perceived lack of effort. And uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he's dealt for maybe an arm. Interesting. Yeah, there's, you know, they've got so much, uh, they've got so much depth. It'll be fascinating to see what they do because um, it's pretty clear, especially with uh, Sevy struggling so, so badly, what they need. Um, all right. So it sounds like depending on the situation, I love you, how you mentioned like knowing the room, you know, if it's, if it's a league you've been in forever and you know the guys and you know, the direction they're going in, you know, that's important. And then being a little bit more flexible going with the draft. Um, if you aren't as familiar with the and have a read going in, in terms of what direction it's going to head into, uh, let's use like a concrete example, um, uh, TGFBI, just because, you know, we're both in it. Um, and I think, you know, uh, some folks, you know, know it 15 team leagues, you know, actually one catcher to utility, um, but pretty standard weekly league outside of that. So as you were, um, you know, as you're heading into the TGFBI draft, whether it's next year or this year, you know, what are the primary things that you're considering as you head into that, that well, draft? I, I've always found for, you know, any type of league that <coughs> it's a good strategy to, mock not via a uh, platform but to actually do the mock yourself and the reason why I think it's a good idea is it's because you end up with your worst case scenario with each pick um, so I mean you know I'm talking about plugging in yeah. on Google spreadsheets or an Excel spreadsheet and just going round by round by round across the boards. And you'll start to see what the worst player in your rankings is going to be in a given spot. Now, I mean, as you go, you're going to have to fill needs for various teams. You're not going to take three consecutive first basemen with the, with the 15th uh, team. But you will start to get a sense of – who is the last guy that would be there at your given spot? And that is something that I did do with the great fantasy baseball invitational this year. Um, and I, I do think it's a useful strategy, um, but yeah. you know, I mean, positionally, I never like to take closers high. Um, I hate the way the team looks when it goes that way. Um, you know, it's one of those things, if that's your go-to and it's worked, certainly congratulations, stick with it. But it's a no-go for me. 
it's too much volatility at the spot. Um, you know, Blake Trinan has been one of the best closers in baseball. And even as his most expensive level, he was like, what, the 12th closer? So give me yeah. that guy because I think I can identify him most years. Um, and I know you're a big Rodney guy. <laughs> if you want to go, you want to go like the cheap route. Oh it man, can, it can work. I mean, how many saves did he get you this year? Uh, he got twenty something, I think. Uh, you know, I look back. I actually traded for Rodney and TGFBI, and that trade kind of undid me <laughs> because I traded. Uh, I traded David. Oh, I'm Price, sorry for bringing up bad uh, for, <laughs> for no, that's all right for. Uh, for Rodney. And at the time, like I had a, a lot of pitching, my pitching was pretty deep. Uh, I did not like price at all. It was earlier in the season when he was struggling, that swinging strike rate was super low. The skills just weren't there. And I just thought it was a matter of time before, you know, he kind of, um, uh, whether not necessarily injury, but just until he, you know, he started going in the wrong direction and, you know, my pitching just disappeared second half. I have, a I have Luis Severino, and so sticking with him as long as I did has really just crushed uh, a lot of my uh, ratios, and having kind of steady David Price in that rotation could have helped me out significantly here. Uh, In the second half, while Rodney obviously got traded, I expected the Twins to stay in it, you know, in the wild card race long enough where he wasn't going to be on the market, and, you know, I just – yeah, that's a that's a wound that uh, that's still healing for sure. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I brought it up, but 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 the, no but no no that's the right. strategy certainly can work. It, you have to have the yep. stomach for it, but it, it can work, and and I prefer that to spending up on a guy like a Kenley Jansen or you know a Craig Kimbrell who's even had a great year. I mean, we've both seen we've seen both those guys have some rough years in recent years. I mean, and Kenley's rough year isn't that bad. Certainly it's this year. I mean, he's got a sub three RA and 30 some odd saves, but it's still, it's really easy for him to end up pretty pedestrian among the closers. And if he's pedestrian among the closers, you just gave up on what a fourth or fifth round pick to take him. Um, I'm not interested in that. I mean, for, yeah, Oh, I was just going to say, I'm in the same place. I, I, I'm going for kind of a mid, mid-tier closer, um, you know, one guy there, maybe one guy a few rounds later, and then, um, you know, at least in a 15-team team, team league, then, you know, taking a flyer, right? Like this year I had a lot of Brad Boxberger, which, you know, has ended poorly. Uh, but, you know, I'll take the 32 saves and, you know, the not terrible ratios at the draft price versus um, – yeah, like a Kimbrel or like uh, Corey Kniebel is a good example of somebody who was going super high in drafts. And, you know, the signs were there that he just wasn't going to be the same guy or that it was hard to sustain what he was doing. But that's you're losing a lot of value. The type of player you can get at that draft pick is just, uh, you know, it's a lot to give up for yeah. a closer. And then in terms of starters, I like to have extra depth. Um, I think this whole opener strategy – is going to kind of have the reverse effect on starting pitcher that it should. Um, You know, I I think the price on starting pitching should be going up. I think it might go down since it's real baseball. Um, You know, if everyone in your league starts five starters and you can stream, you know, more power to you. 
But uh, I play in a lot of leagues where eight, nine, ten starters are owned across somewhere between 12 to 16 teams. Uh, It's just not a very feasible strategy in that format. Um, And given the fact that it is a position where injuries happen and happen all the time, I I just want to have the extra depth there and I'll forego some of my bench hitting for it. Um, And hitting, you know, power and average types are the guys that like I really have grown to um, want to own. Because that skill set is just a little undervalued, I think, and not as available as it seems. Um, so, what are what are some examples of players? Well, like uh, Scooter Jeanette is an example of one, like a twenty-five homer bat that's going to hit like three hundred. Um, Daniel Murphy pre-injury, and even now, what he's doing is another type. Um, I, I think Justin Turner fits the bill when he's healthy. Of course, I'm naming guys that are hurt. Um, <laughs> hey, well, T- Turner definitely has. Been yeah, but Turner's been, been red he's hot. Been smoking um, it. Yeah, you know those types of players that are considered boring. Uh, Anthony Rendon is another that comes to mind. You know, not the not the outstanding power profile types, um, but the guys that can hit 25 bombs and hit you close to a 300 average are extremely extremely valuable. And then the guys that can get up around 35 homers and still hit 280, 290, your Paul Goldschmidt's, um, your Anthony Rizzo's in a good year, um, are, are extremely valuable in my opinion. Jose Abreu is another one. Um, Freddie Freeman. Uh, you know, those types of guys I think are, are, are extremely useful because you just do not find – that sort of power output with that type of average. Um, and, and I think that speed is a little, um, I think the market's a little too aggressive on speed. I understand it's scarce, but I think it's scarce everywhere. And I don't think you necessarily have to win steals to win your league. I think it's perfectly mm-hmm. fine to, you know, shoot for middle of the pack and be great everywhere else. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Well, in, in, in leagues where there, there isn't an overall, um, that's definitely, uh, um, yeah. And an, an interesting, an interesting take to look at that because it's so hard to get speed with, with other things, just like it's difficult. And I think as you're highlighting kind of to get batting average pretty much anywhere, um, you know, but when you can combine that with other elite skills, it's, it's a, it's a huge, huge bonus. Well, I mean, even even just shifting the conversation to speed and an overall title in a in a league like the Great Fantasy Baseball Invitational, I mean, Malik Smith was a guy that you could have gotten extremely late. He's posted thirty some odd steals. Jonathan VR was a mid round pick. Now the journey hasn't been smooth, but he's been crushing it yeah. since he went to Baltimore. Um, you know, you can you can find your way to it. Tim Anderson's another guy immediately springs to mind. Um, you know, you didn't have to buy Trey Turner and D Gordon and Billy Hamilton to have a really healthy speed total. Um, you know, you could have gotten a couple of guys cheaper um, and off the waivers and done pretty well in the category. And 
I think if your team is good enough elsewhere, you could compete for an overall title despite not having, you know, a, a quote unquote dominant speedster on your roster because it's just, there really isn't any, I mean, they're, they're, that that guy just isn't really there anymore. I mean, I guess Turner has the ability to do it. I don't want to jump ahead um, talking about Trey Turner because we're going to talk about him later. But <laughs> but I, I do think that I do think the market has gone a little uh, has almost gotten paranoid about speed, and I, I'd rather zig while the market's zagging on speed. Yeah, well, I definitely think there's something to be said for, um, you know, not counting on that one speedster. Billy Hamilton's a good example this year where he's not producing what he has in past years. And if you were relying on him exclusively, whether it's because of lack of performance or injury, whatever it is, when you put all of your speed eggs in, in that one basket, I think it leaves you pretty vulnerable. So over the last couple of years, I've really tried to, you know, you'll have a couple couple speedsters, but... Um, really trying to spread out stolen bases uh, across your team, I think gives you uh, fairly good insurance, um, you know, in that department. Yeah, I but, agree um, with that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you're, you're pinpointing some of the things that are going to be uh, huge heading into drafts, how you address speed, how you address batting average, um, all of those pieces. Um, what are, are there other things that you do kind of or consider as you're, as you're drafting? No, I think we've touched on a lot of it. Uh, again, I would just emphasize when it comes to, um, you know, a deeper league, a, a, a great fantasy baseball invitational type league where you're talking 15, 16 teams, even if it's one catcher, um, you know, or, or you know, it, 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 you've got an MI. I, I think you've got to watch those positions um, somewhat carefully. Uh, it doesn't mean that you've got to reach up and take JT Real Muto or take Gary Sanchez. It's just I think you need to have a game plan for what you're going to do with those spots and when you're going to do it. Great. Um, all right. Well, let's get into a little bit of in-season management. Um, kind of from a, a speaking broadly, like how do you approach the waiver wire during the season, are you, are you fairly aggressive at the beginning? Do you try to hold on to your fab until later? Um, you know, what's your general approach when it comes to the waiver wire and how are you kind of, um, you've, you've touched on before, like what are some of the, the tools and metrics that you're using to analyze players? I'm assuming you're using um, similar ones, but are there other things that you're looking at, particularly when it comes to the waiver wire? <laughs> well, I, I think that, the batted ball data tends to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe the batted ball data tends to stabilize somewhat quickly in terms of grounders and fly balls. Um, so if I see a shift um, away from grounders towards fly balls uh, and I can line it up a launch angle, I, I can start to theorize if the guy is hitting the ball hard that there might be a power outburst coming. Um, and that's something that I look at. And because ground ball to fly ball rate stabilizes early, um, you can do some um, math from spring training along with the first two or three weeks of a season, and then you've got stable data. Um, you know, this was something that allowed me to identify, um, you know, Yonder Alonso last year 
as a guy that was undergoing mm. a swing change. Um, you know, Brendan Nimmo early in the season, um, he's since gone back to hitting grounders, but he was a guy yeah. that was lifting the ball more um, and went on a pretty nice power streak. Um, you know, you'd be able to tell this about, you know, any number of players, but that's just something to look at if you're trying to identify a power breakout. Um, Definitely. Um, but I think you almost have to be aggressive uh, because everybody's got access to the same information. Um, you know, everybody has fan graphs. Everybody has um, baseball savant. Everybody has Twitter and has, uh, you know, great sources on Twitter like at that flip crazy where, <laughs> where they can hit you <laughs> with, no, you're, you're one of the best ones. Absolutely. And you know, you've got your, you've got your rolling data that <laughs> you, you do and you're, you're always pointing out um, guys that are, are undergoing or, or at least posting or doing something interesting um, that is worth monitoring. And, you know, I'm a big fit. Just, just, just so folks are clear, I definitely paid you to uh, say that in there. So. <laughs> if only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it, but for, I'm a big advocate of, you know, you should do your own work and you should do your own research and you should draw your own opinions. But not everybody in your leagues are going to be doing that. So they're going to go on Twitter and they're, they're going to see this stuff. And they're just going to go and do it based on the whim and the advice of the expert that they're following. Um, and the guy is going to be gone. I mean, think about it. How long did it take guys like Max Muncy and Jesus Aguilar to go from, you know, unowned and off the radar to owned everywhere? It didn't, yeah. it didn't take long. So I think you've got to be aggressive. And for me, I'm not, the biggest like prospect guy I, I, and, and I, and I'm, what I mean is, is I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of chasing prospects. Um, I mm. would rather take the KG veteran that's undergoing um, a skill change um, that then take my shot on a guy that's could be Juan Soto or Ronald Acuna on the high end or be Byron Buxton on, on a lower end or, you know, lower than Byron, Byron Buxton even. Um, you know, and, and the, the chances are more than likely than not, the guy is going to end up being Byron Buxton or, or, or lesser. So I'm not hmm. as interested in, you know, blowing my entire fab budget on one player as much as I would like to collect the Max Muntes and the Jesus Aguilars when I think the skill change is starting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, as somebody who in one of my leagues missed out on Juan Soto by like $30, I think I bid like 370 or something, and then ended up spending that fab on Kyle Tucker. I can tell you, not all prospects. Work yeah, out. and Tucker's so. a great example. And it's not that <laughs> Tucker's not going to be great. It's just, totally. you know, sometimes yeah. guys take some time to adjust. And, you know, and there are people out there that bid their entire, that spent their entire budgets on Vlad Guerrero Jr. And it, it hasn't happened. And Eloy Jimenez, yeah. and it hasn't happened. So that's the other variable you have to account for. These guys could be the greatest prospects in the world if the teams don't call them up until the rules change. If they change, there's no guarantee that they're going to come. So 
I, you know, there's just it, it's a it's a game of cost benefit, and the cost for those premium prospects is extremely extremely high, and sometimes the benefit isn't there at all, just based upon the situation. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I love your point about the need to be aggressive because there is so much, you know, it's not like people sit under the radar for any period of time anymore. You know, like if you're in competitive leagues, people are going to hop to that new hot thing, or there's so much information out there that you almost have to react uh, more quickly. Like I found myself this year, you know, I generally like to look at the longer term, right? Like I, I used to do rolling average graphs for like every 40 days or so. But then I realized like by the time that data is relevant, if the skills are, have been really good over those last 40 days, that person is going to be picked up off the wire. So you end up looking at, you know, your 15 game rolling averages instead looking for like a sign of a breakout versus some of those longer term, um, you know, changes uh, that a player may be making. So I think that that's, uh, that's a great point. And, you know, Paul Spore has made this point several times, and I think it's a good one too. It's okay to just buy a guy for a hot streak. Um, you know, we all want the players that are going to stay on our teams for the entire year and be the big breakout star. Um, but it's okay to pick a guy up for a hot two weeks and then dump him if he turns cold and the data doesn't support it. So that also goes towards being more aggressive. You know, it, it, since we don't, since we aren't able to ha- have the sort of like hard concrete data, and I hate to even refer to it as that, but the, the longer period of data where we're more certain about what the player is, it's okay that you pick the guy up and then cut him because he's not, you know, this amazing hot, like hot player that's going to break out. Um, you know, yeah. you can't be afraid to make those sorts of mistakes in this environment because, I mean, even even the most rudimentary player that just sees a guy as hot will pick up that hot player, and if the guy stays hot and he turns into a breakout, he's not going back onto the wire either. So you almost have to, you almost have to adjust it and and play more aggressively and play more like those. Um, people that are just looking at the hot streaks because the guys just do not stay on the wire like they used to. Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. And, and we talked about this a little bit um, before uh, the show when we were, when we were chatting. Um, but one of the things that actually got me thinking about doing this type of like, uh, I don't know, process related podcast, but really, you know, looking at, how fantasy analysts are looking at data, which data sources, so on and so forth, was this conversation you had with Bubba of um, Bench with Bubba, which is another great podcast. Definitely check it out. Um, where you talked a little bit about uh, your all-star break routine of kind of taking your players on your team's stats, uh, uh, cutting out the names of the players, you know, so that you're just looking at the stat line and then thinking about, you know, the, those stats and what they're saying about the player, what the player should or shouldn't do kind of um, separate from the actual name that you associate and gives players so much 
so much uh, value or lack of value just because of the name versus what they're actually producing. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of kind of what you do there and um, kind of shed some light for light on uh, for folks who are listening, um, you know, who may be interested in trying something similar, you know, heading into next season or at the all-star break next year. Yeah. It's sort of just an effort to take your biases out of it. I mean, the biases of, of what you thought about a player pre-draft, uh, what you think about him based on the last month of performance or, or what he did during the first half of the year. Um, you know, you, you naturally sort of draw some sort of connection with these guys and it's just, you know, it's human nature that you you want to hold on to the players or, or you want to believe in the players that have done well for you. Um, or, you know, you, 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 you grow weary of a player that hasn't done well. And this sort of allows you to evaluate that player from a clearer perspective as opposed to, you know, the negative or positive connotation that you've developed. Um, you know, I don't read too much Matthew Berry these days. But every year he publishes this 100 facts column ahead of the NFL season. Mm-hmm. And therein he points out that you can really use statistics and or circumstances to make an argument for or against any player. Um, and as I got better at the pre-draft part of fantasy baseball, um, you know, I developed this sort of personal bias, bias for, for myself and convinced myself that my process is always right. And that's sort of a dangerous <laughs> mindset. Um, you know, I found myself trying to convince uh, myself that players would turn it around and would look to strictly prove it right um, rather than exercise what is good process and try and look at what was going on, regardless of whether I was right or I was wrong. So this sort of process or, or tool is, is a check against that. Um, you know, you take the players, you plug in the relevant information whatever it is you like to look at, whatever metrics you, you scramble them up or you, you ask someone that you can trust to scramble up the rows of data and come back in a day or two, take a little all-star break for yourself and, and <laughs> review it. Never. <laughs> Listen, we all, we all need, we all need that little bit of time, just a little bit of time away, just to kind of cool our heads at that time of year, I think. So I, I definitely should have taken that all-star break because I have been sick for like two straight months and it pretty much uh, started at the all-star break. So <laughs> it started uh, good, good it's, deal. It's, Note, noted. It for started next with a uh, Fernando Rodney. <laughs> yeah, it definitely. But yeah, it's a, it's a good way because then you're not looking at whether or not Brian Dozier is going to turn it around. You're looking at whether player a is going to turn it around and as player A, you're not you're not thinking about oh well Brian Dozier always has the second half surge. You're thinking well, this data really doesn't look too good, and maybe there's reason to believe that this player is going to struggle for the entire year. Yeah. Well, I'm Brian Dozier as somebody who thought that he was going to have another torrid second half. I. Uh... I probably should have done that. Um, so um, that is a great uh, and very uh, creative way of kind of checking your own biases. I love that. Um, are there, what are some other important elements of in, in-season management for you? I mean, 
I, I think that this is really basic stuff, but you should take advantage of all your roster spots. If you have the DL, if you have the minor minor league spots, and they're not filled, fill them. Um, you know, you want to have roster crunches. You want to have tough decisions to make because that means that you've got a good team. Um, and in this day and age, with the DL being 10 days and the amount that teams use it and abuse it, um, you know, you can always cycle guys on and off. So, you know, that's fantasy baseball 101, but it's important. Um, you know, I think I also said this on the Bubba podcast, but I'll repeat it here. Don't be scared to lose trades value-wise if it's a winner mm. for the construction of your team. So if you need a certain stat or you need a player at a particular position, make the deal if it makes your team better, even if it's a slight loss in terms of value on a player-by-player comparison. Um, Definitely. That's great advice. You know, uh, another, another thing that I would say is don't get caught in the echo chamber. Um, you know, for instance, and I kind of hinted at this before, so many of these podcasts and articles and analysts are like, yeah, just stream starting pitching. Um, but that's only going to work in a league that allows you to do it. Um, so don't devalue a player or a position based on what an analyst broadly says. You know your room, or, or at least you should try to know your room. Context is always king. Um, yeah. If streaming isn't a viable alternative in your league, don't do it just because everybody says to do it. Um, yeah. And I think that's an important pre-draft point as well. I don't like to do overall rankings. So, like, I just do rankings by position, and I'll go spot by spot by, you know, uh, I, I can compare the players at the draft table because after a few rounds, you start to, you know, not need certain positions or you start to de-emphasize certain positions. So the overall ranking sort of sorts itself out. And if you have a decent understanding of player value, you really don't need the overall ranking, I don't think. I, I think it tends to create more noise and more problems than it's actually worth. And, again, it can very lead the league. I mean, if you're in a league where, uh, you know, guys are crazy about speedsters, you know that speed is going to be scarce later in the draft. Now, that doesn't mean you have to, you know, go out and go nuts and reach for speed. It just means it's something to be aware of while you're at your draft table. Yeah. And I, and I think the, your point about the, just the overall kind of ranking is a good one, especially as you get deeper in drafts and you, you know, particularly in Roto leagues, like, you know what your team's strengths or hopefully you know what your team's strengths and weaknesses are. And the overall rankings aren't as, important as understanding how different players fit in, in in terms of team construction and uh, meeting the needs that your team still might have uh, later on in the draft. I think that's something where ADP can be confusing for folks too, because, you know, you may be uh, reaching for a player when it comes to ADP because you have a, a need and that player represents one of the last, you know, um, players who can fill that, you know, so yep. I think that's a, that's a good, yeah, it's a great point. Um, well, and then a lot of people, you know, say that, um, you know, 
a certain percentage of your success in a given season is um, is based on the draft, and then X percent is based on in-season management. Uh, what would you give the percentages? And obviously the percentages aren't as important as your explanation for why uh, you chose those. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I hate to do this because I feel like I'm repeating myself, but <laughs> the answer really does depend on the context of your league or, or more specifically the depth of your league. Uh, I think the deeper the league, the more the draft matters um, because the quality on the waiver wire just isn't there. Um, the shallower the league, the more I think in-season management matters because there is actual quality on the waiver wire. Um, and, you know, the percentage also varies person to person. Um, you know, Nick Ligatino, who I do my podcast with, is a trader. Um, his draft is like 75% accumulating assets that he can just eventually deal. Um I'm not as active as him. You know, I kind of construct my team and if everything runs smooth, um, I tend to just make moves to strengthen my depth as opposed to trying to break the bank. Um, So, I mean, in my view, I would say it's probably about 60%, 65% maybe, because I think that's really the base of your team. And and then your in-season management are sort of where – you fine tune everything and you know, you, you strengthen the areas where you're weak or attempt to strengthen the areas where you're weak based on the waiver wire and via trades. All right. So the answer is 6535. Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But I, I think, you know, you can't really hammer home that point enough though about context, because I think this is something that happens a lot on Twitter is you get questions about like, well, who, who should I, who's better, player X or player Y? Or should I trade player X for player Y? And it's, you know, in a vacuum, you can make those types of decisions, but without understanding the context of somebody's league. So, you know, what categories do you need if you're in Roto? Or, like, what's your strategy in head-to-head? Um, you know, uh, without understanding those types of pieces, right, that are hard to, to communicate in a tweet, you know, that... Um, you know, it's, it, you can't really give an, an answer, right? I mean, you can give an answer, but you can't be 100% sure that that is uh, accurate if you don't have the context or you don't understand, you know, how deep the waiver wire is or what other options might be, right? I think that's the hardest thing because, you know, a lot of times, like, I do a lot of 15-team leagues, a lot, a lot of 12-team leagues, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are doing 10-team leagues too, um, and so the way the waiver wire is going to be a lot, uh, deeper there. And there's just so many configurations of leagues that folks are playing. So context is critical in, in answering that question. In addition to answering virtually any question when it comes to in season management or, or even player analysis within, uh, within fantasy baseball. So I like it. So let me, we'll do... let me just ask you this. I, I'm just yeah. curious. Do you agree with me about my analysis of, the draft being more important in a deeper league versus in a shallower league. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I think so. Like I, I play in a, you know, a home 12 league, which, ha- which has actually fairly shallow benches and um, you know, some of the players you can pick up, you know, it's just, you know, like I picked up Herman Marquez, like, you know, like a month ago, 
you know, he'd been hot for like probably a month already. And, um, you know, there he was just sitting there on the waiver wire. Whereas in some of the deeper leagues I'm in, like the 15 team leagues that don't have D, uh, DL spots, for instance, right? Like in those teams, like your draft is, um, or the ones that do have DL spots, right? Like, uh, like TGFBI, it has fairly shallow benches. I think five player benches, but you got all those DL spots. And so, uh, the wire is pretty barren. Like I'm looking for hitters right now and there's just nothing there. So I think the key is that you're not doomed, right? Uh, well, you can, you can destroy your season at the draft for sure. But, you know, for the most part, like your draft is really critical to setting that foundation, as you mentioned, but, uh, there is the possibility of doing in-season management and changes. There are Max Muncy's of the world. You know, we forget that, you know, Aaron Judge last year, there's always going to be some players and you just got to be, you just got to be luckier in finding those guys if your draft isn't as successful. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Um, how about end of season evaluation? Like, do you do any kind of po- post-mortem on your seasons to kind of identify areas where, you may have made mistakes or you might be able to improve or you made a really good decision that you want to be at, be in a position to make in the future. I mean, I, I tend to sort of step away when the season is done from my own personal teams and just leave it alone. Uh, the season was either a success or, or a failure. It, it's a grind. So I think stepping away <laughs> from my personal teams, I, I think it's important to, for the process of being able to detach yourself from players that y- you know best and move into the broader arena where you can judge players without any attachment. You know, as an analyst, I, I like to go back and try and listen to the bull prediction shows and listen to the pre-draft shows um, sort of as a quality check to see how you did. Um, you know, you can always have fond recollections of your best calls, but, uh, as they say, tape don't lie. Um, so (laughs) that's an endeavor that I'll undertake soon. But as far as my own personal teams, no, I think, I think results usually bear out how you did. I don't know that there's a lot of, there's a lot of utility in going back and, um, you know, trying to analyze, uh, what you might've done right or wrong rather just, you know, letting the results speak for itself and um, getting ready for the next year. All right. And then um, this is, this is one of my favorite questions. It's like the question when you're in the job interview and they're like, what's your weakness? So what is your, do you have a particular weakness you feel like as an analyst? Um, Go ahead. Yeah. I, I have to laugh because literally the first, comment that i had to this was this is like a job interview question yeah, totally, right? <laughs> and i i also had to chuckle earlier in the show because when you mentioned your personal weakness about guys that were free swinging um you know you mentioned javi Baez, and that's exactly it like i feel like i'm a little stubborn as both a fantasy baseball player and an analyst and like javi Baez is like the exact guy i have absolutely I have almost no interest in owning a hobby bias because yeah. I, I think the price is going to be ridiculously high. And I understand he's had this obscene breakout season, but I just can't understand why pitchers throw him strikes. <laughs> so yeah. I'm willing to acknowledge that Baez had this great year, 
And since he did this at this age, it's entirely possible he can do it again. But he's not, a, he's not the type of player that I would ever recommend. I also think I definitely see the game of fantasy baseball broadly um, through the lens of head-to-head categories mm. because it's my first and my favorite format. Um, you know, there aren't huge differences between the head-to-head categories format and the way it's scored compared to Roto, but you obviously have playoffs, so you can afford to be maybe a little more conservative um, in head-to-head categories, and you have to take a little bit more risk in Roto to be able to win. Um, But I've gotten better at that over the course of uh, the last couple of years, and you know, I still think I could do better, but that's something that that I think I I've worked on and have gotten better at. And and with the head-to-head uh, categories, are those generally playoff leagues that you're in? Then yes, yeah. So so I I only play roto, which is probably a weakness of mine as well in terms of thinking about things. But it's so hard for me to think about. Um, you know, like I think of the example, this is probably pretty poor, but like Corey Kluber, his start against the Rays, right? Mm-hmm. Where like all season long, you've got a guy who, and Kluber hasn't been the steadiest guy, right? He's had, he's had tough times, but he's a very good pitcher, you know, where you have a Corey Kluber who blows it when you're in the playoffs, you know, and you've put to, you've assembled this amazing team and yet one start by one guy because it's so bad skews your ratios for that whole playoff round and you end up losing, right? Like this is the the same criticism I have for like fantasy football, uh, which I, you know, I play, but, um, and I do head to head, but it's just, um, talk to me a little bit about that as somebody who plays head to head. um, How do you kind of reconcile the team you've created versus the team that shows up in the playoffs? I mean, (laughs) this is America. (laughs) <laughs> we have playoffs in every major sport. That's that's what it is, you know, I, and I understand it's frustrating. And, you know, there are ways that you can craft your head-to-head league um, where you, you know, you, you give a reward to the team that finishes in first and had the best season. You know, you give them a payout and then you have your playoffs and you give another payout to the guy that wins the playoffs and, you know, is the quote-unquote champion. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that would be my argument is, is that this is – That this is that, America. This is America, <laughs> and we have playoffs we have- here. <laughs> this is not European soccer. <laughs> well, as, a, as, a, as an English Premier League fan, that must be the reason why I like playing Roto. <laughs> oh, that's, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I have played before uh, in, the, in the head-to-head, and there's definitely something to the – to the playoffs and just kind of the tracking. Uh, but uh, I just love the, I love, I love the, the, the season long format. So, but I, I, I appreciate the, um, uh, the explanation to this English premier league uh, uh, loving guy right here <laughs> uh, about, about the playoffs. Um, it reminds me of the really great commercial. I don't know if you remember this, but um, uh, for the Tottenham Hotspur uh, coach, did you ever see that one? Where no. they have like the the NFL football coach who comes over, uh, uh, who plays it. Uh, I think Chris Chris Parnell is that his name? Something like that. It's some uh, Saturday Night Live guy. It's pretty it's pretty funny. And he's like, 
you have to you we have you play to win the game and they're like well you can actually tie it he's like wait what um, anyways, it's worth it if you if you do like a. I'll have to. Uh, I'll YouTube, go look it up YouTube on YouTube. Search. Yeah, Tottenham I imagine Hotspur. it was Herm Edwards. Uh, well, I mean that's that's who that quote, that particular quote was from. But there's other like funny things like, you know, getting ready for the playoffs and they're like, wait, we don't do playoffs. It's like, um, I don't know. It's it's funny. I'm doing a very poor job of articulating it, um, but uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Okay. Um, so uh, to wrap us up, we are going to do one of my favorite segments um, that is uh, fresh baked and hard cookies. Um, and so fresh baked are players that you um, really like. And in, in, in terms of context, this is heading into next season. So uh, four players that you love heading into next season, who are your fresh baked cookies. And then three players that you think are going to underachieve compared to what current expectations are for them. And those are your hard cookies and for folks who didn't listen to the first interview, this comes from just the sheer, the sheer pain of ordering a cookie at a bakery, expe- expecting it to be soft um, and biting into it only for it to be a hard cookie <laughs> and very disappointing. Um, so let's, uh, let's hear your fresh baked. Let's start okay. with the positives. So my fresh baked is, is inspired tonight by the, lovely black and white cookie that I actually had on the train ride home. That was definitely oh, fresh nice. Food. Nice. So um, I'm going to kick it off with the Oakland mats, which are Matt Chapman and Matt Olson. I expect that I'm going to own one of them in almost every draft that I'm in. Um, you know, I talked about Olson earlier. I think he's a legitimate 35 to 40 Homer guy um, experiencing what I think is close to his floor for uh, a full season. Um, He's improved or remained steady, I think, virtually across the board. Elite hard contact. The K rate has come down. The pitch recognition is solid. Um, I think there's more average upside based on the batted ball profile. He's hitting more line drives this year. Um, And literally, he might be, you know, eye test-wise, one of the guys that you would think would be a 40 homer hitter based on the way the ball flies off his bat. Um, Chapman, I loved him coming into the year and he's been great. Um, I think the profile will underwhelm a little bit at the draft table. He's sort of one of those power and average guys, at least this year he's been, um, which was a little surprising because everybody yeah. thought the power would be there, but the batting average would be right around 235, 240. That's not the case. Um, the glove plays every day because it's fantastic. So, you know, watching his games is a, is a joy because he kind of has that Kevin Kiermeyer effect where he's outstanding defensively and fun to watch. And then you get to watch his at bats as well. Um, tons of hard contact. He shrunk the swing and miss without losing the quality contact. That's huge. Um, I'm interested to see where he goes in the upcoming Mason mocks. Um, my, uh, my third guy is Brendan Nimmo. Um, a very good first full season uh, showed more power than I think people expected. Again, love the pitch recognition skills, the patience through 750 plate appearances. He's got a 385 OBP. And I think he's got room for growth in the power department. Um, he started to hit more fly balls early in the season. He reverted back. I think if he shifts um, on a full-time basis, um, he could be a 25 homer bat. Um, 
But really, I mean, the profile reminds me a lot of Sin Chu Chu um, with a little more swing and miss, but those sort of on base skills with um, mm. good power and a non-zero in speed, probably hitting at the top of the lineup. Um, I'm a big fan. He's a, uh, Shin Su Chu is definitely a huge fan of the pod. Well, he's not a fan of our pod, but the pod is a, a huge fan of his. That was a crazy <laughs> okay. pod. Uh, Chu has been on my, um, uh, on my bold predictions list as being better than Rugnet Odor the last two years. And he's somebody that every year I own in like, you know, over 50% of my leagues because every year he just provides solid across the board uh production and he still goes like 230th yep you know so i like that that's a very interesting comp i like that a lot yeah and he's got the ability to run like young chu did you know like that mm-hmm. 12 to 15 steel sort of pace so it's a it's a pretty nice package and at 25 i, I do think that there's room for power growth definitely Okay, and he's and a then, and he's a happy dude. Yeah, and he's a Met. <laughs> a Mets which fan? Is, yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> which means he's gonna which means he's gonna stay healthy. I there promise. You go. For sure. Um, <laughs> and my last guy is Matt Strom. Um the Padres have hinted that they see Strom as a starter long term. Uh but they've treated him with kid gloves, uh keeping the workload down in the bullpen, and he's excelled there. Now, you know, we're obviously months and months and months from the start of next year. So who knows what his role is going to be. Um, He's been really good in the bullpen. Maybe he stays there, but um, I've been a fan of Strom for a while and I've seen a starter's arsenal from him. Um, He's in the right ballpark and division for, for his skill set. You know, obviously cores aside because he's a bit of a fly ball guy. Um, If he ends up in the rotation, he's going to be on every single one of my teams because I think he's got, you know, top 40, top 35 starter upside, um, you know, in the long run. Nice. Okay. I, li- I, I, my- I love those yeah. choices. Those are great. And I think, um, you know, Matt Chapman, I mean, I know a lot has been written about him, but just some of the adjustments he's made at the plate, with the increased the improved contact skills and um, just incredibly impressive uh, for his really his first full year uh, in the bigs. Yeah. I always thought there was a shot that, you know, he would develop into a better hitter. I always expected him to be, you know, like a 25 homer bat, um, you know, as I said, like, like a 235 average, but I, I thought that eventually he would become a better hitter. I'm amazed at how quickly it's happened. Um, what I thought would happen is, is that he would play every day because of the glove and then the hitting would eventually catch up. But I, I, I was a big fan of his and I never saw, you know, 285 type upside from him and it all adds up. I mean, it is very much for real. Um, yeah. You know, I'm hoping I'm very interested to see where he ends up in these Mason box. I'm extremely interested to see what the price is on him because he's not so it, it like, it isn't so good that I think the price is going to be out of hand either. Yeah. 
Yeah, it'll definitely be interesting. There's so many guys that I'm just really fascinated to see where they go. So, um, all right, let's look, let's take a look at your uh, your three hard cookies. The folks that are gonna disappoint fantasy owners next year. All right, my first one is Carlos Rodon. Um, you know, I caught some hit, I caught some heat on Twitter for Rodon a few weeks ago, but to me, this profile reeks of a time bomb. Um, I'm a guy getting lucky because of a soft schedule. Um, a 200 Babbitt against under seven Ks per nine walks over three and a half per nine. The contact is up. The swinging strike rate is down. Um, he's doing a decent job of limiting hard contact, but this is a really scary profile. Um, but the results are there. I imagine because of the name, the pedigree and the results, that's going to push him higher than I would be comfortable taking him. Um, he's a complete stay away from me. Yeah, I agree. I, I joked around in, in my September's prediction podcast. I joked around that I don't want to live in a world where Carlos Rodon can have, you know, a 200 BABIP over this much of the season, you know, and, uh, <laughs> it's just and a, K, and a K, rate, K rate under seven and, maintain the era where it's at you know it's just um it's just crazy so i'm right there with you on that one yeah and you know what and even in the last few starts like the walks have come back too so it's like yeah. that was the one Five thing that was, today. that was the one thing that was kind of like um you know not a complete sign of doom and now that's there too so it's like all these forces are combining and you would think it would form the perfect storm. And it just hasn't. He's still, he's still only giving up two earned runs every time out. (laughs) I I can't stand it as somebody like in my TGFBI league where it's just comical, like how bad my pitching staff has been, regardless of who I throw in there, having a guy who produces those skills and gets those outcomes is just painful for me. Yeah. So, Yeah. Cool. Who's next? Okay, uh, Trey Turner. Uh, the market has always been higher on Trey Turner than me, and I don't expect that to change. And, you know, I'm not criticizing the thought process. If he plays, he's going to run, plus he's going to hit for enough power to not be a zero there. He's gotten better in terms of approach, and all those things are true. I don't refute any of that. But my issue with Trey Turner is, is that he's pretty much gone fourth overall since he's become a major leaguer. Like, first round, fourth pick overall. And he's going to end up going somewhere in the first round again this year. Even if he doesn't go there early in the mocks, I'm convinced by the time March rolls around, he's going to be, like, the seventh pick in the draft. Um, And at that price, I'm for going um, truly elite hitters for the sake of taking him and his stolen base upside. And that's a philosophical thing for me. I like the rest of the world. Like power speed guys, you mentioned accumulating speed as you go. Um, and, and it's certainly a profile that um, is attractive, but not at the cost of what like I consider your foundational offensive pieces. And that's really the issue with Turner. Um, you know, I, I'd rather have Nolan Arenado and Jonathan VR than have Trey Turner and Mike Mustakas. Because VR has a shot to be Turner. Mustakis cannot become Arenado. 
Are you sure? I am 100% sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Cool. Yeah, I think Turner is going to be super interesting because I saw one early mock, and I think he still still went like eighth or ninth maybe um, in the first round. Oh, God, if he's going eighth or ninth now in March, he'll be third. Yeah, I'm fascinated. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm definitely somebody who comes from the camp of you need to get your speed early where it doesn't hurt you in other categories. So I'm not uh, off Turner by any stretch of the imagination. I do think it'll be really interesting to see where where he goes because um, I do think he's a he's a unique. Uh, well, he's not entirely a unique profile, but it, it's definitely a unique. Uh, Definitely an interesting profile. Yeah, so. I'm going to be the guy that's going to take Jonathan VR in round 10 and then cut him in third week of May. <laughs> yeah, when he can't, when he can't, when when their Orioles decide with a full year that they don't want to have any guys on their team run, they change their mind. So, um, cool. And who's your who's your last one? The last one is Shohei Otani. Um, you know, I, I think he's remarkable, but uh, he comes with a lot of buzz. He's hit extremely well, and in fact, unexpectedly well. Um, and I think that combination plus the extrapolation monster is probably going to push this price too high for me. Um, you know, one only needs to look. His 600 plate appearance pace is 38 homers, 18 steals with a 290 batting average. Um, I think there's going to be buyers that won't be able to resist that potential and name value on draft day and are likely going to pay more than I'm willing to. All right. Yeah, that's going to be fascinating, too, to see where he goes, being hitter only. Um, Yeah, and what a remarkable season. I mean, uh, when you think back at those articles in the preseason about, you know, how poor of a caliber hitter he was to see what he's been able to do is just uh, remarkable. So, yeah, that'll be – it'll be really interesting to see what the price is and how to – how to – how to – yeah, how to how to respond to it? Yeah, and so. I'm and I'm very curious to see how like the because I feel like the market has always had a stigma against DH only players, and I'm very mm. curious to see how sort of the Otani hype counteracts or or interacts with the fact that he's a util only guy. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I wasn't even thinking about the util only too. That'll be really interesting to see for sure. Um, cool. All right, so we have our our four fresh baked players for next season: Matt Olson, Matt Chapman, Matt Strom, Brendan Nemo, and then our three hard cookies: Carlos Rodon, Trey Turner, and Shohei Otani, the hitter. Um, that is going to wrap us up, Patrick. Anything else you'd like to add? No, just thank you very much again for having me on. Uh, really appreciate it. Had a great time. And uh, hopefully uh, I'll be uh, invited back. Great. <coughs> it only took me till the, till the end of the pod to start coughing, which if you listen to the pod is like a regular occurrence. Uh, but thank you for joining. Uh, really great discussion. Uh, really enjoy uh, following you on Twitter. And uh, yeah, we... Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. No problem. Anytime. All right. Take it easy, Patrick. Bye. Bye. That is going to wrap us up for episode 22 of the Bat Flip Crazy podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to our guest, Patrick Donovan, for joining me. Uh, Really enjoyed talking fantasy baseball with him, getting his perspective on some important questions when it comes to fantasy baseball and how we play the game. Uh, As always, really appreciate all of you listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Give us a five-star rating. Please leave a review. Always love to see new reviews um, showing up on the podcast. Um, It just, uh, it really does make my day. Um, Do want to apologize again. You know, I've been dealing for about two months with a cough and now uh, some sinus issues. So apologies that I... Uh, my, if my voice sounds a little uh, rough uh, throughout this, appreciate you hanging in there. Also, if there was the occasional child crying in the background on the audio of the interview, I also apologize uh, for that as I had, uh, had, had some awake children in the background on a couple occasions there. So thank you so much. We are heading into the stretch of the fantasy baseball season, a little over two weeks left. I hope your fantasy baseball season is going well. I hope you are closing in on a championship. And if you're not, that you have enjoyed um, playing fantasy baseball. It's a great game, a game that I love. um, And I know that if you're listening to this podcast, you probably love it too or are in the process of loving it. So um, without any further ado, appreciate you listening. Best of luck with all of your fantasy baseballing and be kind to one another.